0: Um, I sort of chose this well I chose it for one, two reasons I chose it because we were looking at it at CU um, when I was working in Aberdeen but also because uh, when I was here last time I was you about some of the work I was doing in Nidri this was like a really um, foundational passage for a lot of the work that was done on that scheme on that housing estate Um, I think we often look at the parables and stuff and think, yeah, that's great for Sunday school, but when we get to church we want to get into some Romans, get into some really meaty theological passages. But actually what's written in this parable, what Jesus says in his parables are really profound uh, and really, really meaty. And uh, hopefully tonight as we chew over this a bit more, uh, you'll see why that is and why it's actually incredibly challenging to us as Christians as well. Um, One of the things that impressed me about Nidri when I was there is just the the sort of intentionality of the people in that church of putting themselves into areas where they can sow the seed, as it were, where they can proclaim the gospel so they would... uh, one guy in particular would just always go and get his hair cut at the same hairdresser because he said it was a good way of getting to know his hairdresser and telling her about the gospel. I found that quite challenging Uh, and again, this is sort of what this passage leads us to. It sort of challenges in terms of how we view the gospel uh, and how we share the gospel with others. So um, how about I pray before we look at it and then we'll chew over it a bit more. Father God, thank you for your words. Thank you Lord that uh, Tonight, as we open up your word, um, we're not just looking at a book. We're not looking at just a historical document. uh, It's not just text on paper, but it is the voice of the living God that we hear as your word is opened up. Father, I pray if there's anything tonight that I say um, that is not helpful, that is not in accordance with what your word says, that you would just beat it out of everyone's skulls, and that we would just really take home what you're teaching us tonight in this parable. We pray that we would see Jesus, that we would uh, grow to love him more uh, and to know him better as we study your word. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, um, I've often thought as well, like, why, does, why does Jesus use parables? Um, so he did three years of teaching. Uh, it's just an interesting form of teaching. He teaches through stories and through narratives and parables. And I think what we see here in, uh, in this section of Mark we get a brief glimpse into one of the reasons why he uses it. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, it says that when Jesus was preaching there, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So imagine that. Jesus is out teaching. Imagine he was out on the river Tay, and there was just like so many people like filling the banks listening to his teaching. Um, And he didn't have a mic like this, so I imagine he probably had quite a good voice. And then it's interesting, when you look at verse 10, it says, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And I think almost what Mark's saying to us here is that the parables acted as a sort of filtration process for those who were genuinely interested in Jesus, between those who weren't. So at the start, you've got all these people. They've probably come along because they've heard about Jesus, they've heard... He's done these amazing things. Uh, they've come along probably to see a miracle, to see something miraculous happen. Um, they've heard this of this prophet, and they want to be entertained. Yet instead of that, Jesus tells them a story about a man sowing seed. And then afterwards, what we see in verse 10, is just a small handful who actually bother coming to Christ and try and find out what he's saying. So it's the 12 and just a few others. See, his parables separated the people who wanted to be entertained between the people who wanted to know him. And you see, these parables are not just like uh, stories with a a moral attached to them. It's not like one of Aesop's fables. Uh, These are Jesus' way of teaching us about him, about his kingdom, and about the power of his gospel. That's what we see in this section. This parable is a challenging one for the church. Uh, It challenges our mission. It encourages all the same. Uh, And not only that, it will challenge us as individuals, just in terms of how we live our life. Um, And it will challenge us to strive for a deeper understanding of the gospel, to know Jesus better. So, our mission, really, why we exist as Christians, we want to glorify God. That's why we're here. And we want to tell people about Jesus, we want to tell them about the gospel. So, I think it's important before we sort of look at this to remind ourselves of what the gospel is. Paul describes the gospel in Romans 1 16 as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is God's power of salvation. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has died for all the sins, all the wrongs that you and I have ever done. He has taken the punishment of God's anger against our sin so that we can be saved and declared righteous before God's eyes. It is powerful. It is a means of salvation. It is something in which... Fundamentally, everyone here needs to know before they know anything else, they need to know the gospel. It is that important, it is that powerful. But what's interesting in Mark 4, Jesus likens the gospel to a seed. Uh, it's a common metaphor as well that's used in scripture and describing the gospel. So Peter talks about us being born again of uh, being born again of not by a perishable seed, but by imperishable seed. Um, In verse 14, Jesus says, the seed that the sower sows is the word of God. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is inextricably linked with his word. That's why the Bible as God's word has to be absolutely central to our lives, has to be absolutely central to the mission of the church. That's why we preach the word like uh, Timothy and Titus tell us to because in it, we see Jesus. In it, we get to know Jesus. In it, we see the gospel. We don't proclaim some uh, lofty, feel-good philosophy that is contrary to what God says in his word. Uh, We proclaim the gospel, and that's why we preach the word. That's why the word is preached. That's why the word is central to everything. But it's just interesting, the analogy of a seed. Uh, You know, you think of God's voice being really powerful, this idea of God's words, you know, breathing out universes. He just speaks, and all this amazing stuff happens, you know. You think you could use analogies like like lightning or or a hammer, uh, something powerful like that. Jesus uses, and quite an apparently, quite a weak metaphor. I think it shows us how God's gospel works, how God's powerful gospel works. It works through weakness, doesn't it? That's always been how God works. The universal symbol of Christianity is not a crown, it's a cross. An apparently weak thing we see that Jesus, at his moment of apparent weakness, looking weak when he's hanging on a cross, the creator of the universe, is actually his greatest triumph, his greatest victory over Satan. Seed starts small, but it grows into a magnificent tree. And God's word can seem weak, but there is an unimaginable creative power contained in it. When someone hears and embraces God's word, it begins in them a powerful transformation and a radical change. The small seed brings new life. It gives insight and understanding uh, into who we are. It gives insight and understanding into who God is. And I love what C.S. Lewis said. It's, the gospel doesn't create nice people. It creates new people. That's what, this seed do, that's what seed does. Peter says it is imperishable. It's everlasting. It is eternal. Everything else will fade away, but the word of God will stand forever. As a church, just in St. Peter's, we want the people of Dundee to have that. We want them to have new life. We don't want them to become nice people. We want them to become new people. We want them to have the power of salvation. We want them to hear the gospel because that is the very reason why they exist. And we know that if they reject God, God will reject them. And so we strive to go out and sow the seed The gospel, we strive to go out and tell them uh, the good news of Jesus Christ because we know that it's the power of salvation. And you think that if that was the case, if we were going out, if it really is that powerful, if it really is that foundational, if it really is that joyful, that people would respond well. But what Jesus tells us in this parable is that people don't respond well. In fact, the majority of people don't respond well. So let's look at some of the different responses that we see uh, and that Jesus tells us off here. So firstly, we have the seed that has fallen on the path. Um, it doesn't lie long before the birds come and snatches, snatch it up. And Jesus tells us in verse 15 that these are those who hear God's word and immediately it is taken from them. And the birds, he says, represent Satan. I find that quite interesting. So these are people uh, who you meet that seem just completely indifferent to the truths of the gospel. They just couldn't care less, to be honest. These are people who are uh, just completely, can react in a hostile manner, or more often than not, just in an apathetic manner. Think about colleagues, think about course mates, um, think about people you know uh, in school or the workplace, um, who just... When you try and tell them anything about Jesus, instantly shut off. In fact, anything about any sort of big question, they just don't want to engage with it. They just don't care. And if what Jesus is saying here is true, then that means that the reason they're doing so is because Satan is not letting the word sink in. So it's not just down to their own apathy or self-interest, but ultimately, uh, it's a spiritual battle. Ultimately, Satan is snatching the seed before it has a chance to gain any depth in their hearts. You know, we can be... I think when we often talk about uh, Satan, his angels, his demons, uh, it can be quite cringeworthy. It's like some people... Sometimes we feel like we're talking about goblins or unicorns, some sort of mythical beings. And there's that great line in the film, The Usual Suspects, where he says that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Um, And I think... Sometimes we shy away from that. C.S. Lewis says that there are two mistakes that we can make regarding Satan and his angels. Firstly, we can become totally obsessed with them. Like, we're seeing them in everything. Like, oh, I've got a lazy demon attacking me. No, you don't. You're just lazy. Um, And secondly, we just ignore them completely and think, oh, no, that's nothing to do with Satan. That's nothing to do with his, his angels. It's nothing to do with demons. And both of those are mistakes. Satan very much does exist, and he very much does want to stop people hearing about Jesus. So, in seeking to sow God's word, we are engaged in that spiritual battle. When you're out there and you're trying to talk about Jesus to your friends, to your coursemates, Satan is just hovering above, waiting for an opportunity to grab that gospel seed before it has a chance to gain any depth. It's never easy sharing the good news of Jesus especially with people who have hearts like paths. And we can't change that. You know, we can't. We're powerless. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord over Satan and the Lord of the resurrection. And he can change those hearts of stone. He can turn path hearts into hearts of good soil. I think that's why prayer is so important for just everything in life, especially mission, but every aspect of our life. Because it just acknowledges that we are helpless We can't do anything to produce growth. And it shows a complete reliance over Jesus and his sovereign power. Then secondly, we see seed that falls on the rocky ground. Now, these people in verse 16 to 17, uh, they're more responsive to the gospel uh, than those whose hearts are like the path. So they listen to it and they think, yeah, this is good. I quite like this. I'll give this a shot. I really like what I'm hearing here. The word of God becomes comforting to them. They like what the gospel gives them. It gives them comfort, forgiveness, peace, security, community in the church. However, as soon as trial and tribulation come along, they drop it. I don't know if you've ever heard people say, oh, I tried Christianity, but it wasn't for me. These are rocky ground people. Essentially what they're saying is, Christianity didn't give me what I wanted, so I dropped it. They embrace it at first, but when suffering comes, they drop it. They don't have a deep enough relationship with god and as a result they drop him for the sake of their own personal comfort they use the gospel they use the word of god for its blessings for what can give them but what essentially they're doing is just marrying god for his money they want what god can give them there's no relational aspect there it's interesting just thinking about the whole topic of suffering we went to see a film last night called the tree of life which deals with this um, go and see it if you're quite artsy well just go and see it um it's pretty boring to be honest uh, but it's a really interesting film that deals with uh, how this family deal with the loss of their son and uh, the guy's brother how they deal with that and it uh, it looks at sort of life and death and um, and just what the purpose of life is uh, in light of that and there's just a really interesting how they deal with suffering in light of their faith in God as well, and what I think, what we—it's a really good film just for looking at that. And there's one really interesting bit where the dad says to the mum, oh, "He's with God now," and the mum says, "Well, he was always with God." I think when we look at uh, suffering from a Christian standpoint, when we have a, a relationship with God, the Bible tells us that suffering is not something that destroys our faith, but it reinforces it. It gives it steel. Again, Peter talks about it being like a fire that refines us, that makes us come out pure at the other end. I think that's what's so radical about the gospel. And it makes such high demands. It demands of us that we give ourselves up totally for Christ. It's profoundly real about the fact, yeah, suffering's going to happen. You will suffer. We've got to ask ourselves, have the truths of God's word sunk deep enough for us to endure when those trials come? We have that relationship. We do that by making God's word central to our life. Daily let ourselves be nourished by it. Daily let ourselves be fed by what is written in here. So that when those times inevitably do come, which they will, we'll have the strength to go through it and come out better at the other end. I think thirdly as well, we see in verse 18 to 19, um, we see those people who let the word sink a little deeper, but they are later choked by thorns. So this is people who hear, respond to the gospel, embrace it, but slowly other things start to creep up. Money, it could be relationships, job prospects, power. They come up and start to supplant God's word. Things of the world become far more important than what God's word says. And this is so, so subtle. You see, this is the the seed that's fallen on the ground with the thorns. And thorns don't just appear either. They grow up alongside, slowly. And these things don't always, are not always bad. It can be good things as well. I always quote this, but I think it's good when Tim Keller talks about these things, he says that when these good things become ultimate things, that's when they become dangerous. So good things like relationships, good things like money, good things like job prospects, even when they become your ultimate goal in life, they end up totally consuming you. They become the very reason for you existing. And a good way to think about that is to look at what could you not possibly live without? What would be the thing that if you lost, you would not be sad, you would be devastated? You need that in order for there to be any purpose in existence in your life. The Bible calls them idols because ultimately they they take the place of God. And slowly they choke out any sort of godliness until they eventually consume you totally. I can think of when I worked at the Christian Union, there was people who I knew who were part of a Christian union at university um, who ended up, after CU, after university, ended up drifting from the gospel and ended up just drifting away from God completely and indulging in other stuff that the world had to offer. I saw it in Nidri as well, it was really sad. Um, one guy who was so uh, wanting to change, so adamant that he would become a Christian, um, and eventually just got consumed by his desire for drugs and just abandoning Christianity altogether. It's got to think well, why is that? And often it's because their roots aren't deep enough. They don't want that relationship with God over their own personal desires. They decided to follow Him, and it was easy to do so, especially in the context of a CU, of a Christian union. It's very easy to be a Christian there because you're surrounded by Christians. It's easy to do it in a church if we're surrounded by Christians all the time. But ultimately, it existed as nothing more than a comfort blanket in a social club. It wasn't a mission team for them. As soon as they were thrust out of it, they embraced worldly things over God. I'm not saying that's what can, what will happen uh, here, but you've got to think about how can you stop something like that. You see, the problem with all the soils, what we see is ultimately the problem's a depth problem. The word hasn't gone deep enough to produce any sort of fruit. It bounces off the path. It's on top of the rocks. It's not deep enough before the f- thorns choke it. So the solution then is to let it go deep. Let it go deeper. Let the gospel be. A reality, not some sort of far-off concept that you think you know. Look at how the gospel affects every area of your life. Remind yourself of the gospel daily, and ultimately be grounded in this book. You see, this is not just a this is not a manual for living. This is not just some uh, history book, like I was saying at the start in prayer. This is not just text and paper, but Hebrews says this is living and active Word of God. When you read it, you hear God's voice. God himself speaks. This is God's word, and this is where we learn about ourselves. This is where we learn about God. I love what John Calvin says. He says that Christ comes to us clothed in the scriptures. So when we look at this book, we see Jesus. We see him who lies at the very heart of the universe. We see him who lies at the very purpose for our existence. And so, what we see finally is the seed that's fallen on the good soil. They hear God's word and embrace it, and as a result, they grow, they produce fruit. And you see, this analogy tells us that the gospel, the gospel lives take a while to grow, it takes a while for people to change. Seeds don't instantly produce fruit, it's a process. Um, And some of you here, I don't know, might be quite new Christians and may be thinking, oh, so-and-so is so so much better Christian than me. Uh, I wish you could be like that. That's not how you change. Let the Word change you. You don't play the comparison game. Just take heart in the fact that change is not something that happens instantly. You don't become a good Christian. But what the Word does when we study God's Word is it gradually changes us. You could be here and you could be thinking, I guess well, here, how do I know that uh, if I'm the seed that has fallen on the good soil, what happens if uh, I've fallen on the rocky ground uh, and suffering's going to come and I'm going to drift away? Or what happens if uh, these thorns end up choking me? And I think it's important to know that if your desire... I mean, the people who fall... whose seeds, who hear the words, and the people who fall... On the, people who are on the rocky ground and the thorny grounds, ultimately, their desire's not for God themselves. And that's why it's so easy for them to drift away from the gospel. But if your desire tonight here is to, I want to know Jesus, I want to love Jesus, and you think, I'm so rubbish, I don't do that, I just wish I could do it better, then that's a sure and certain sign that that gospel seed is sunk deep in you because that is not a desire that can come from you. That's a desire that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Father delights in the Son, the Son delights in the Father, The whole Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, delight to be with each other. That is a godly desire. And we know when we encounter Jesus, we fall short of that, but we want it. And so, if you're here and that is your desire, if your desire is to know Jesus, even though you're rubbish at it, that's a sign that you have embraced the gospel of Jesus. And to sort of feed that desire, let the word sink deep. Let it grow. See, religion's just totally the opposite. It's about racking up your outward moral performance. It's about, I do all these things so that God will accept me. It's a mechanical kind of growth that religion brings. You build up all these good things so that people see you and think, hey, there's a good person, but behind it, it's just the same person. You've just built up a mask. But the gospel is absolutely the opposite. It produces organic change, not mechanical change. It takes this small seed and it grows into something completely different. It creates new people, not nice people. It's an inside-out transformation. I was just at a camp um, that I was doing with the free church, and one of the boys said to me, uh, who became a Christian at the camp, and we were chatting to him about it because I wanted to... You know, inquire to what, what makes you think you're a Christian and stuff. And uh, one of the things he said, he said, after I've been in a few camps, and after each camp, I've sort of um, I've gone back thinking, right, I'm going to do better in life. I'm going to try and be a better person. He says, but at this camp, I've come to realize, actually, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do to make Jesus love me more. There's nothing I can do to make him love me less. And it, he says, I just feel that that's what's happened and I can, it feels so great. I can just trust in him. And to hear him say that, I was like, man, you've got it. That's what the gospel does. It changes you from the inside out. And part of that inside out transformation is having the right motivation. So we're all called to be sores of the word, but let our motivation be the gospel. It's not just for church leaders, this parable. This is for all of us. We're not driven by thinking we have to perform, we have to sow so that God will accept us. No, we're all motivated by grace. We're grace-driven farmers. And the joy and the truth of what Christ has done drives us out into the harvest. You see, the Bible never tells you to perform a moral action without, first of all, giving you a grace motivation. Even when, I, when you look at the Ten Commandments, I thought they just began with, you shall have no other gods before me. But they don't. They begin with, remember the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. God calls them, first of all, to remember his grace. They didn't do anything, the Israelites, but God saved them, freed them, caused them to pass over into the promised land because of his love for them. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. The gospel seed has to change us first if we want to be effective source of it. We have to let it sink deep. Just remember that this is the truths of that, of what the gospel is, that you were once an enemy of God. You weren't just passively ignorant, you were dead in your sins. And every bad thing that you did, every thought that you every bad thing you did, every thought you thought, everything you said that God heard was just ultimately a direct spit in his face. But God wants you so badly, and he loves you so much that he's willing to send His Son to die for you. He looks at you and He says, I want him or her. I want them in my kingdom. I want them so much that I would let my son die for them. He died to get you. And it's interesting that when Christ gets us, when God gets us, when He calls us into Himself, what we see in all the scriptures, that when God calls us in, He does so to send us out again. If we turn to look at Luke 5, um, just after Mark, Um, I find quite a fascinating passage Um, I know that St. Peter's has already looked at uh, this so he should know it Mm. Luke 5 verse 8 what happened is Jesus just performed a miracle in front of Peter and uh, James and John and this is what happens this is just when they're called to be disciples when Simon Peter saw this he fell at Jesus' knees and said go away from me Lord I am a sinful man For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. See, when we come to God's word, when we come and look at this, when we see Jesus, I think that's often our response. It's like, my goodness, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. It's talking about that Tree of Life film uh, that we saw. And one of the scenes in that, the wee boy realizes he's done all these wrong things and he's sitting down and he's praying to God and he says, I can't speak to you. Don't even look at me. And I think when we confronted with who Jesus is, with his beauty, with his majesty, we think, God, I can't even come near you. I am so bad. What does Jesus say? He says, come follow me. And he sends us out. He knows what we're like. He knows better than we do. Yet he's called us to be his mission team. I think that's amazing. We don't have to do it alone either. We've been given a great gift in the church. The church is here to witness to this community. The church is here to equip and build each other up so that we can be witnesses in the workplace, on campus, wherever we are. We don't go out into the harvest alone. Can you imagine if you just went out into a field? Imagine Dave Miller, because he's a farmer, went out into his field with all this land, and he just had all the seeds in his pockets, and he went out and just thought, there's nothing happening here, there's no growth. He'd be daft, because the seed's in his pocket. I think often we can look at Scotland or Dundee and be like, Oh, there's just nothing happening. This is such a secular country. It's just going to the dogs, whatever. And we're just keeping the seed in our own pocket as well. You know, the gospel is like a seed, and it often feels really weak when we hold it out. I've done talks, and I've just felt so weak in comparison, especially when you're doing them at university, at lunch bars. And it is weak. It's just a tiny seed And three out of the four soils reject it. But we can't despair when the gospel's met with hostility, apathy, or when people seem to like it and then just end up dropping it. In fact, Jesus says, expect it. And who knows what you may see in your work or your university. Could be the next Billy Graham out there studying medicine. Next Jonathan Edwards could be working at your local garage. That would be cool that seed and that individual that you spoke to can go on to produce a harvest 30-fold, 60-fold, or a hundred-fold. I had an amazing experience with uh, my auntie one time when I was asked to go up and work uh, up on a farm. Instead of, I wanted this job that would have really helped me with my degree, uh, and instead I I didn't get it, and I had to go and work on this farm, which was rubbish. Um, And... What was amazing, when I was up there, my Auntie Fiona was living uh, with my grandparents at the time, and I was staying with them. And we used to just have these wee chats about the gospel and stuff. And I didn't think much about it. And then I, I was a wee bit sneaky, though. Like I would try and get her to come along to church with me and say, oh, I want to meet some friends. Can you drop me off at church? And I didn't know anyone at church, but I just wanted her to come along. And then sometimes, uh, you know, I put 170 Tim Keller sermons on her computer. Uh, I thought that would help. Um, you know, it was just like it was silly stuff, and we, we only chatted. She didn't, I mean, Fiona didn't listen to half the stuff I said. Um, but it's interesting, because I remember getting a phone call a few months after saying she'd become a Christian, uh, and it was amazing, and she was just talking about some of the stuff, and uh, just some of the chats that we had, and there was a lot of different things that led her to becoming a Christian. One of them was a Take That song, which I think shows how funny God's salvation is. Um, but <laughs> we were talking about it, and what was interesting, at our baptism, a chef from her work was there, who became converted at our baptism, and now they're married. And I was at a camp where them two were cooking, and I was hearing about the stuff that they are hoping to do in the community. The gospel is a seed. It just takes a word, but it just can produce this harvest that is amazing. And the encouraging thing to know is that we are sores, not growers, of the word. That will be devastating. We can't change hearts like we're saying. If you go out there thinking, I have to do this because I have to change people, that's not being motivated by grace. That's going back to religion. That's mechanical growth, not organic change. But God changes hearts. And that, that bit in Mark 4, 27, isn't that brilliant? Jesus says, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. The gospel seed is working even when you're asleep. God is working. God makes it grow. And we don't rely upon ourselves. And that's just a great thing that we just go out sow the seed, and then we can sleep easy. And who knows what God will do and how he'll use it. It's totally down to him. And the most important thing to remember in sowing and proclaiming the gospel and telling people about the good news of Jesus, the power of salvation, is that nobody is more passionate about making God's name great than God himself. That's encouraging to know that even when we're speaking, even when it seems weak, God uses that for magnificent things. The word of God is a powerful seed that can change even the hardest of hearts. And the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest testimony to that. He was probably the only one that could have succeeded in destroying the Christian church. And yet he ended up becoming its greatest missionary and evangelist and wrote half the New Testament. Radical change. Not only creative power, but recreative power. It's unmatched. Uh, one of my heroes, Martin Luther, was asked, and I'll sort of close with this quote. How he's, he, Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, uh, which was kind of a big deal. Um, and a lot of stuff came out of that. And he was asked how he managed to accomplish... So much and this is what he says. I'm just going to close with this quote. I simply taught, preached, wrote, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Fittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amstorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such a damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful. Father, thank you that by it we can know Jesus. By it we can learn about your gospel of salvation. By it we are encouraged. By it we are challenged as well, Father. I pray that every single one of us here would be rooted deeply in it. We'd be rooted deeply so that when idols come in our lives, as they constantly do, so that when suffering comes, as it inevitably will, we will have the strength to endure through it and that this word will cause us to love Jesus more and to build our lives around Jesus. Father, may we seek to proclaim it. May we not become passive and dead, but may we become active in seeking to share the good news of Jesus with the people of this country who so desperately need it, with the people of this city. Father, help us and give us opportunities in the workplace. Give us opportunities with our friends and family who we know who do not know you. Father, we want them to... Hear the good news of the gospel. Help us to understand it better so that we can be driven out to tell people about it, Lord. Help us to be motivated by your grace and by your love. Father, may we just be people who are seeking for every opportunity to sow the seed, knowing that harsh reality, that three out of the four soils will reject it. But help us to be joyful, Father, for the sake of your name and for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.